Emma, thank you. Arigato gozaimasu for talking with me. <laughs> when I, I've been to Japan so often doing energy tools workshops, it's, it, it seems so civilized that you don't wear shoes in the house or the temple mm -hmm. and that you bow instead of shake hands. It's, it, it seems like a very civilized culture. Yeah, I don't know if it's more civilized or not, but it's convenient at the moment, certainly. It's, it's easier to social distance. Right. Yeah. Let's just start at the very beginning. Yeah. You're, you're obviously not Japanese. Where and no. when were you born? I was born in May of 1973 in Nottingham, which is in the center of the UK. It's a sort of medium-sized town. And, yeah, I lived there for the first, near there for the first 16 years of my life. And I've been in Japan for half my life now. Wow. And then where did you go to university? In the UK. So I was still in the UK at that point. Right. And uh, what did it take to get into one of the best universities in the world? How did you do that? <laughs> I don't know. I um, studied hard and was lucky, I suppose. Um, it's most, I mean, obviously it's mostly about academics, but I think like U.S. universities, they also want to know about extracurricular stuff and so on and so forth. But at the end, of, and, and they also interview every single applicant, which is quite unusual. And I think I had three separate interviews with three different professors. So quite a lot also rests on those interviews. And your, your A-levels have to be really extraordinary, I'm assuming. They do, but well, they have to be good. But I think they also do look at the interviews because otherwise they couldn't choose. I mean, I guess the people who are applying are all expecting your results or they wouldn't apply in the first place. Mm -hmm. And what did you study? I studied history. Me too. What? Oh, what really? Yeah. At, at Berkeley, uh, where I met your mother. <laughs> yeah. Mm. What, what, did you have a particular emphasis at the a period that you were most interested in? Interested, yes, but the way the Cambridge degree is structured or at least was when I was there and I kind of doubt it's changed very much because they're not they don't change very fast is that so it's a three-year degree like most UK undergraduate degrees and three terms per year and each term you take one paper so one period and it it changes each term and you can choose more or less freely you have to take two British history papers, one's political and one's social and economic, and they will be the same period. And then one European history paper, and then the others you're free to use. So you could dot around all over the place. Um, I was mainly interested in medieval history, so I tended to take you know, earlier papers, but it wasn't very coherent. The, the plus side was that you could really look in depth at what you chose to study, especially in the latter part of the course when they were in more, of the three-year course when they were getting more specialized, paper was getting more specialized. The downside probably is that despite having a degree in history from quote unquote one of these great universities, there are still huge chunks of history that I know nothing about, certainly not from my university education. Right. It, yeah, did you, were you interested in Japan at all at the, as, as an undergraduate? I was, but not specifically, to be honest. And I couldn't have studied Japanese history had I wanted to, because the, own, the Cambridge degree, certainly then, and it, it probably has changed a little bit now, but it was very British and European focused. And there were some courses on other parts of the world. The only one on Japan was on post-war Japanese economic history. I was never really interested in economics, so I wouldn't have chosen to study you know, Mitsubishi or whatever. So I didn't choose that. Choose that. And then how did you... I in Japan, but no more than in other countries. I was always interested in generally in other cultures. and I'd never been to Asia, so I suppose that was a fascination. And then there, I traveled quite a lot in Europe and North America and the Caribbean with my parents, but I haven't been very... Yeah, your parents are big travelers. Um, yes, they are. <laughs> how did you start working in Japan? So after, immediately after graduation, I came to Japan on a program called the JET Program, which is run by the Japanese government. It's still going, and it's quite a well-known program. It's basically to teach or to assist and teach English language in state schools, government-run junior high and senior high schools mainly, occasionally elementary schools as well. And I applied for that program because, partly to be honest, I didn't really know what I wanted to do yet after university. You know, the 
again, the kind of good thing and bad thing about a history degree is it's very open-ended, so there were many things I could have done, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do the sort of graduate employment route that Cambridge graduates were quote-unquote supposed to take, although not everyone does take it, but, you know, going onto a sort of prestigious management track of some big company. And it felt, I suppose, easier not to do that if I was outside the UK. And also, I just, I wanted to travel. I studied abroad in Quebec when I was 16, so I'd lived abroad before without my parents and wanted to do it again. And I heard about this JET program from a girl in the year above me who'd already graduated and she was already in Japan. And I think it had just the right mix of adventure and security. You know, the adventure was going to the other side of the world and not knowing anyone and learning a new language. The security was that it was run by the Japanese government, so it was well-paid and potentially better organized than some private language school somewhere that you don't really know anything about. And then so I applied and I was lucky. I got on. Did you actually teach in a middle school or high school? Or Yeah. Yeah, the first three years in Japan, I was living in Aomori Prefecture, which is in the north, um, right at the north tip of the main island. It, so it's quite a rural prefecture. And I was working in a senior high school, which is 15 to 18 in Japan, 15 to 18 years old, for the first two years, and then a junior high school for one more year. So 12 to 15 year olds. What, what struck me when I visited... Uh, secondary schools in Japan mm -hmm. is that they're very quiet, that there's not a lot of dialogue. And even when mm -hmm. I visited an English class, they weren't speaking, they were they were writing. So that, huh. to, on one hand, there's no discipline problem. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it, did you find it frustrating that not to have this kind of dialogue or did you make it happen or how did you handle it? Mm -hmm. It does depend on the school, I should say. Senior high schools, at least in Japan, have entrance exams, so they're streamed in a way. So there are some more academic schools. There are some more professional-oriented schools. So not all the schools are super disciplined. I mean, compared to Britain or the US, I suppose they probably are, on average, I'm certainly better disciplined, but it does vary. And they are, as you say, also less interactive, again, in general which the Japanese government also sees as an issue. That's one reason why they employ all these native English teachers to come in and supposedly, you know, make the English a bit more lively and a bit more spoken, because it's always been an issue that Japanese people can have certainly reading, English reading, and less so writing, but particularly reading and less good speaking and writing. But the problem is that all the students are studying towards the university entrance exams and as long as the entrance exams don't change then you can bring in the token foreigners and we can play games but it didn't really change things. So to be honest the first few years in the senior high school were, were frustrating in that sense. I loved my students, they were really sweet and interested and kind of naive in a good sense that they were, can I say, I think British teenagers will be much more blasé. Oh, yeah, you came from around the world. Yeah, that's great. Fine. Bye. <laughs> but, but the Japanese teenagers will be like, wow. And they want to know everything about the UK. But I really enjoyed interacting with my students outside the classes. I would go and eat lunch with them. Um, I joined the English club to help out with the English club. And I had a great time there. The classes themselves were quite frustrating um, because I couldn't do very much. Just read out the textbook. Yeah. In, in my main school, I also visited some other schools which were less academic, and in those schools I tended to have more leeway, partly because the, the students weren't going to get into good universities, they weren't supposed to get into good universities anyway, so they didn't have to study hard at the entrance exam, and also because I was only visiting, so it was a kind of special. So that in those schools, the students' English level was usually lower, but I could do more interesting things. And then when I switched to the junior high school, there was a bit less pressure in terms of exams, at least for the first couple of years. By the time they got to the third year, they were having to study for the senior high school entrance exam, so there was a bit of pressure. And of course, they spoke a lot less English, but they were just generally very funny and lively, and I would clean the school with them. You know, Japanese students clean the schools and the school themselves at the end of the day, so I would join in with that and, again, eat lunch with them. as How long did it take before you felt fairly fluent speaking Japanese? It's a difficult question. I mean, everyone always asks that, and I don't know how to answer it because I'm not sure what you define as fluent. There are times when I still don't feel fluent after 25 years living everyday life in Japanese. Um, 
But I would say after one year, I could have everyday conversations, no problem. And I could start to talk about something more in depth, like say history, but I wouldn't know all the words, but I would manage somehow to talk about it. By the end of the three years on the JET program, I could more or less talk about most things that I wanted to, unless they were very, very specialist. But I still wasn't very good at reading and writing after the three years. Mm. And then I picked up a fair amount on that through working. First, through studying at a Japanese language school for a year, and then in the course of working. But I still feel like an elementary school student when it comes to writing. So I feel like a, an eight-year-old. I can communicate, but I don't look like a Japanese adult. What my writing? Well, that's and why. Never, that's fine. That's why we have computers. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. You You know what strikes me is that that Japanese are um, sometimes judgmental of gaijin, I, of mm -hmm. foreigners. I certainly yeah. experienced that. But you mm -hmm. could understand what they were saying about this gaijin. So I'm sure you had plenty of times when people say, who is this tall person or whatever? What, mm -hmm. Does that still happen? Occasionally. I live in a small enough place now that most people know me, so they're used to me. I think it was... Occasionally judgmental. More often it was just curious, which might come across as sort of rude or judgmental to someone who comes from a more multicultural background where you have to kind of be more politically correct. But yeah, it's not meant in a bad way. People are just really curious, especially towards white English-speaking foreigners. It's not really a negative view. It's just, wow, hey, I wonder if that foreigner can eat natto sort of thing, but it's not, it's not meant in a bad way. I'd like that. Yeah, or can they use chopsticks? I mean, Oh yeah, people would. You know, we've been Chinese since we were three, but people would look at me and say, "Oh yeah, she's really good with with the." Um, oh, I forget how you say chopsticks. Oh, how she does it, isn't it? Yeah, so this name. Yeah, but they they would be surprised that I could could do that. Well, then, how did the jet program morph into a, a different kind of career in Japan? Mm -hmm. So I was on the JET program for three years, which was the maximum at that time. It's a one-year contract, but you could renew it. And it's now, I think, you can be maximum five years, but at that time it was three. And after three years, I just got to the point where I felt like I was just about understanding what was going on, not just the language, but the sort of intricacies of the culture, not everything, but enough that I knew I'd made an effort to get there and it felt it would be a waste to leave at that point when I was finally getting it. And the same with the Japanese language. As I said like, my speaking and listening were pretty good, but my reading and writing were much lower level. And so I decided to first to study at a full time at a Japanese language school because I didn't think I could get another job. I needed a visa basically to stay. And so I didn't think I could get another job other than English teaching. And although I'd enjoyed the JET program, I'm not by nature really an English teacher. So I decided to try and improve my Japanese. And I stayed at a Japanese language school for a year and a half in the end. I originally had been involved for six months in Sendai, which is a bigger place than I had been, but it's still a regional city. And after that, again, I put in a lot more time and effort learning Japanese and money at that point. My savings were pretty low because I was basically living off savings plus part-time job while I was studying. And I was lucky to find a job with the British Council, which is a cultural relations, international relations organization. And so I moved to Tokyo to take up that job about five years, four and a half years after I originally came to Japan. So that was in 2000. And what did you do for them? I was working in what was called the education, promotion and partnerships section. So there were two parts to that job. One was to do with directly helping individuals who wanted to go and study in the UK. And the other part was helping mainly universities and other educational institutions who wanted to set up reciprocal links to set them up. At the beginning, it was more direct sort of education counseling of individuals, and it gradually moved over the years. I was there about 15 years. It gradually changed to much more sort of the links and the higher level policy and supporting you know, government education policy when they were looking to the UK or vice versa, those kind of things. Hmm. Um, at this point, what... Uh, besides superficial things like bowing and taking off yeah. your shoes and calling mm -hmm. people S A N yeah. or Chan if they're a kid, what what mm. other kind of 
subtleties of cultural differences did you become aware of over over time living in Japan that, that are different than growing up in the UK, say? Mm, well, I suppose because I was working, it was mostly related to work culture, and there really was an emphasis on being present and looking like you're doing the work rather than what, as, at least as much as what you produce. That felt frustrating sometimes, I suppose. But at the same time, I was working for a British organization, so we were, but with mostly Japanese colleagues, so I was kind of, we were kind of in the middle. We weren't really completely British or completely Japanese. Um, because I was in Tokyo, in some ways it's quite impersonal. So although there are cultural differences, you can kind of do your own thing. So in it's mostly you can live a sort of more Western life or a more Japanese-style life. It's up to you. Whereas now that I'm in the countryside and in a much smaller community, there's definitely more pressure to fit in with the cultural norms, even though I never will because I'm a foreigner, so that's always a bit of a tension, and there is some leeway, but I'm, I'm, I'm foreign. Um, here in the countryside, it still is, and traditionally has been a rice growing you know, based culture, and rice growing is communal. You can't do it yourself because of the way the irrigation works. You can't just look after your own rice fields. You have to work together. So there are a lot of communal job tasks, which, for example, maintaining the irrigation channels, which is still carried out even though most people don't farm rice anymore. They still have to go and clear the rice and the irrigation channels a couple of times a year. And then afterwards, it's kind of an excuse for a drinking party, really, for the older men as well afterwards. <laughs> and the women are supposed to be in the kitchen washing up, which is definitely a problem. I managed to avoid that so far because of having a young kid. I think everybody after it. But that... That has felt a bit tricky, the expectations around the genders, which again are quite different in the city and the countryside, I think. And I know Japanese, there are Japanese women as well who also struggle with that. So it's not just a foreigner thing. On the positive side, though, especially here in the countryside, the community ties are very strong still. So people help each other out. And so I think you can feel a lot. I'm not sure safer is the right word. I don't just mean that you're not going to get attacked, although that's also very unlikely in Japan. But if something happened to you, probably the neighbors would start wondering and would come around and find out what was going on. In a way, it can be annoying as well because there's no privacy, but they might also think, oh, you know, we haven't seen anyone throwing out rubbish for two days. We've got to go and see what's happened now. Um, this, this might be a good time for you mm. to show us around, if you don't mind, so we have a little bit of a sense of a Japanese home and environment, what it's like living in the countryside there. I can show you the room upstairs that I work in, because this is really the, the most traditional Japanese-style room. It's a bit dark. And we can see. Okay. Underneath the roof of the house, so it was a really People did agricultural work in the winter, because there was a lot of snow in this area, so they would do things in here like making books or stuff like that. And we had it redone fairly recently so that we could use it as my office area. And also, my son's playing various things like that. So it's got traditional Japanese style sort of earth. But the walls are kind of earthenware, which my father and I did. My father, when he came out to visit Japan, helped me sort of paint the, the earth on the walls. And the, the beams of the house are obviously still the original ones, so they're about 150 years old, probably. Um, yeah, I don't, that's probably the... This is really the only traditional bit of the house. The rest of it is not so um, exciting. I can, I can take you downstairs, but there's not really so much to see downstairs. We, Basically, it's all tatami rooms, almost all tatami rooms. A couple of for people who don't know, tatami are the mats. The mats, yeah. I'll see if I can find you a <laughs> Although, again, what would you really feel? Yes, good. Yeah. And this is the, the big room in the center of the house, which is very untidy, so we apologize for that. But as you can see, it's got a very high ceiling. In fact, this isn't even the original ceiling. The original ceiling would have been even higher. Oh, wow. Um, they, they put a, about 
40 years ago they put this plywood ceiling in, which I really don't like, but my, my husband thinks it's good. Basically, it keeps the house warmer in winter. It's very, very hard to heat the house when it has such high ceilings. And most of the walls, you can maybe see, they have sliding doors on the bottom half. Or wooden sliding doors. So that means you can take them out and you can make an even bigger space. So the point of this very large room, it was partly for the family to live in, but it was more in the past people used to have you know, weddings and wakes and funerals and everything in their houses. So you could get a lot of people in this room. And if you took out the wooden doors on that side, it goes through to the um, main room where the, the Buddhist altar the Buddhist altar is, which is a smaller room, but it's more formal. Um, Oh, look at that. It's a family altar. Oh, wow. Wooden doors, and so make it all into one big room if necessary for a big event. And what else is there to show you? I don't, those are really the main parts of the house, and then to go. And then put your shoes on. I put my shoes on now. So I'm still inside the house, but this is the place where you put your shoes on. And then outside, I'm afraid from outside the house really doesn't look exciting or nice or traditional at all because it's got all this metal, like sheet metal on the outside, which really bothers me. Um, but again, my partner cannot, cannot see why it bothers me that it could have sheet metal because everyone's house is around there. It's very normal to do that now because the wood deteriorates quickly, especially with snow. And so they put metal on the, house, the outside of the house, which is much more you know, I'm sticking pretty close to the house because otherwise my Wi-Fi is going to cut, I think. <laughs> are you, are your, neighbors, your, neighbors are really, your neighbors are close to you. There is one neighbor just next to us, yes. But that's, that's the only neighbours. And they don't actually live there full time. The lady who used to live there, the elderly lady, died a couple of years ago. And her son and daughter-in-law have their own house in town. But they also come here sometimes, especially in summer, and look after the garden. But they're not here the whole time. But the rest of the houses are further away. But in that direction, they're probably... They're about, the next house will be about 100 yards away. It's not a long way away, but it's not super close either. We can make a noise. It's fine. Great. Great. Yeah. And yeah, so you can't really see, probably see the mountains very well on the camera, but there are some mountains on the other side of the valley, small mountains. I live in a valley. Most people in Japan live in valleys because there are basically only valleys and mountains and then a few plains, which are the cities. And we have a bamboo grove at the back, which again is very common. A bamboo and forest, which is very cool. Water pit, my son. Um, do do you have deer that come from the forest and say hello to you? Um, occasionally, not actually, not really deer like the western deer. We have we once recently this summer with an animal called a in Japanese. In English, is apparently Japanese sero, but it's more like a mountain goat apparently. But it's large. It's about the same size as a deer would be. But that's unusual. They wouldn't normally come this far out of the mountains. Wi-Fi and also I can plug the again. But we do have monkeys. The monkeys come out of the forest, which sounds very cute, but actually they're aggressive. Oh. And they come in troops of about 15 and they steal people's vegetables. You know, I don't grow them anyway, so I don't care, but they steal everyone's vegetables. And because they're smart, they know exactly when the vegetables are ripe, so they keep an eye on them, and then they come and steal them just before harvesting and run off with them. And because they're aggressive, you can't really face them. So people set off firecrackers to try and scare them away, but the problem is that most of rural Japan, including here, the population is declining and also getting a lot older. So a generation ago, the monkeys didn't come down this far, apparently, but now there are fewer people, and people aren't going into the forest as much, so they're coming animals the wild boar as well we get wild boar and we get bears not so much in this season but before they hibernate so in a couple of months they'll be coming down to try and eat before they hibernate 
How interesting. Well, so there's a gap between working for the British government yes, yes, and yes, ending up in the country with a yes. partner and a, the cutest son that you could ever imagine having. So what, fill Sometimes. us in. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so I, I worked for the British Council for about 15 years, maybe a bit less, I've lost count, but something like that, in Tokyo. But I was never really a big city sort of person. I, I moved to Tokyo because that's where the non-English teaching jobs for foreigners were. It's a really interesting place to live, especially when you're young. There are loads of things to do. I mean, it's great culturally, but after a while, this one-hour commute every day on the train started getting to me, even though I lived in a relatively less crowded area. And so I wanted to move out of Tokyo, but I knew the only way I could do that probably was, well, the only way I could think of was to go to work freelance, to try and work freelance as a translator. But in order to do that, I had to change my visa status because when I was working for the British Council, I was on a work visa, but I had to be doing a full-time job to get that. So I decided to apply for permanent residency, which is not that easy in Japan. The Japanese government welcomes foreigners short-term, but they kind of expect people to go home again after a while. So you have to, if you're not married to a Japanese person, which I wasn't at that point, you have to have been living in Japan for 10 years continuously at least, and then you have to show various other things, like basically a contribution, blah, blah, blah. Um, but eventually I did apply for permanent residency, and I got it. And so after that, I quit the British Council and moved to Niigata Prefecture, which is where I live now, which is in the countryside. It's kind of directly across Honshu, the main island from Tokyo. So you cross the Japan Alps. It's about 250 kilometers maybe, and two hours on the bullet train on the Shinkansen. And I moved to the city called Itoigawa. And I basically lived here by chance. I mean, there was no particular reason why I should move here. I just looked online. A lot of rural towns and cities, because of the depopulation, they have a lot of these houses vacant. And they, in livable condition but empty and they're not really worth anything in Japan because because there aren't people moving into the countryside so people can't sell them they don't have retail value um, and the local governments want people especially young which means anything really under 60 probably would count as young even if you say average age or something move in so they have a, a lot of cities have what they call a vacant house bank and they on their websites they show information about various houses that you can either rent or buy. And at that point, I didn't want to buy because I wasn't sure if it would work out or anything. So I wasn't rent. And I happened to find in Itoigawa, in the city, a house that I liked and moved here pretty much as an experiment. I thought, well, you know, if it doesn't work, the worst comes to the worst, I can just leave again after a year and try somewhere else because I was rented. I wasn't sure if it would work living here and I also wasn't sure if working as a freelance translator would work financially or not, because I hadn't tried it. And that was, I think it was about six years ago, but I'm not exactly sure about six. And then how did you meet your, your partner and come to okay. this house? So the house that I originally was renting is about 15 minutes walk from where I live now, my partner's family home. And my immediate neighbors across the street who were very good to me um, were a couple in their maybe 60s now and their mother, the, the man's mother. And after I lived there for a couple of years, the mother died. She was in her 80s and she died. And the, the man, the son, came to tell me about this and say that I could go to pay my respects to his mother. Because here, after someone dies, they're usually, at least in the countryside, they're they stay in their house for a couple of days and people come and pay their respects there before the, the funeral. So I went across and there were various neighbors, of course, and relatives and so on there. And I was just focused on the protocol because while I lived in Tokyo, it had been a very different lifestyle. I'd been in touch mainly with young people and it wasn't such a close-knit community. So I hadn't been invited. It's not even a wake. It's kind of like the pre-wake bit, but I hadn't gone to that before. So I was just focused on the protocol. But my now husband was there because it was his aunt who died. He's the cousin of, the, of my previous neighbors. And so he, of course, noticed me because I'm a foreigner. I stick out like a sore thumb everywhere, especially in the countryside. But I didn't notice him at all. But 
and he likes British cars and British rock music. So he was interested <laughs> in me as a British person for those two aspects. I know nothing about British cars and not particularly much about British rock music, but never mind. <laughs> so he asked his cousin to introduce me because he wanted to talk about cars and rock music with me. And so that's how we originally met. And then we you know, gradually got to know each other and ended up getting married. <laughs> well, ended up or started or whatever at the start of the next year. And how how was it different than you would, how was your lifestyle or your relationship or your family or how you raise mm. your, your little boy different than if you were doing it in the UK? Well, it's difficult to answer because I think so much depends on the individual family. I mean, even within the UK or within Japan, there are so, such big differences. Um, and, for example, living here and living in Tokyo, I think it would be massively different. But in very, very broadly, one thing that's different for me as a working mother is that the daycare provision in Japan is better, especially for young children, as in under three, in that the public, there is public daycare and for working parents, you have to be working is a condition of, of until your child is three, below three, the parents both have to be working. Um, but it's publicly subsidized, and so it's very affordable. It's based on your income, so it varies a little bit. But even if you're high income, I don't think it would be particularly expensive. And the teachers are all qualified, and they're all, you know, the facilities are built by the government. Because we live in the countryside, I have a daycare with four kids in the whole daycare that's between my son is two and the eldest boy is five and there's four of them in total and they have three staff there every day because that's legally what they have to have given the range of ages so it's an enormous a good staff so um compared to british sending a, a child to british daycare if i were in the uk i wouldn't be able to afford it for a start because I would be paying it all out of pocket until three. And then even from three, the government does provide some subsidy, but it's not nearly as much as it is here. And it, I don't know if it would be harder to get in, because in in the cities here, and in Tokyo, for example, it's also hard to get into daycare. There are long waiting lists because there are so many women working now. But on the whole, it's definitely a lot easier here. On the other hand, parents, which means... In fact, mothers are expected to be much more involved, even if they're in their child's upbringing, even if they are working. So, whereas for a British daycare, I took um, last December, I had to go to the UK for a week for work, and I managed to put Thomas into a daycare there just for a week while I was working. I was lucky that there was a space, and it was it cost me more than it would for the month here, but but it was great that I could put him in there, and that was very easy in the sense that I just dropped him off in the morning with a change of clothes and a cup and they didn't even really care if he had his name written in the clothes or not. Here it's all like you need to have a towel this size and a little cloth to wipe his face this size and a bag to put it in this size with his name written like this. You get even a booklet for your child's exactly how you have to have everything and I get so many detailed instructions from the staff. Oh yeah, this is this lunchbox is slightly the wrong, size, the wrong size for him. It would be better if it was this kind of lunchbox. And it would be easier for him to learn how to take the milk and put it on himself. So it's great. I mean, they're, they're really involved. But it, if I were working a full-time job outside the house, I think it would be hard, especially if I had more than one child. To keep up with the amount that you're supposed to be involved. Because I do work when I work from home, so I have more flexibility. So even though it's busy, it's, it's easier to juggle a bit. So I think the cultural expectations, again, this is a massive generalization, but it's still expected that the mother will do pretty much everything related to childcare. Housework, although it is changing, it's changing in both senses. And, and my partner does do some, but partly because he works shifts in a, an elder care home, which is you know, a really hard job and he's exhausted when he's home. I do end up doing most of the childcare, and it's also expected by nursery. Like if occasionally my partner looks after Thomas for the evening while I go to a meeting or something, the nursery staff will write. Oh, we also have a notebook for the nursery. Every day I have to write a little message about what Thomas did at the nursery and what he ate for breakfast the next morning, and what time he went to bed and what time he woke up and whether he's he's done any cruises, you know, because they have to check that as well. <laughs> um, and if I write that 
yesterday I went out and sort of daddy spent time with Thomas and nursery staff will always write like, oh, that's so great, you know, well done, daddy. Like, well, yes, okay, but that's a once a month or less, and how about well done, mummy, the rest of the time? Anyway, it's not only an issue here, but I think because, again, because we're in the countryside, it's quite a difficult setup. And also, although three generation families living under the same roof are becoming less common, they still do exist in this area. And even if the grandparents are not in the same house, at least one set of grandparents are often nearby. So they tend to be involved in the childcare and they can do the, you know, picking up the kids from nursery if mum has can't finish work on time. Whereas I don't have that. Um, my partner's parents were both, both died before, quite a long time before I met him. And obviously my parents are nowhere near. And my husband is working late shift most of the time, which means he can never pick up my son from nursery. So however busy my work is, <laughs> the buck stops here. So I would want to Right. Again, I'm not sure of how much of that's a cultural thing, but I think there is a cultural element. And possibly the other big cultural difference, again, never raised a child in the UK, so I, I'm only comparing with what I see from friends and hear from friends. There seems to be an even stronger expectation here, possibly than in the UK, about sort of norms that a child should achieve at each age, even from a very young age. So my son is two, and when he went for his two-year-old checkup, which is a public health checkup, which is great, they provide this for free for city. They were worried about various things, so they told me that I should take him to talk to the specialist because he was so active and he runs around a lot and he falls over a lot. Well, yes, because he runs around a lot. <laughs> and that his Japanese language skills might not be quite the up because they were worried because I think this everybody else is Japanese. His father, that they get everyone. His Japanese is not the worry. My worry is keeping up his English. But really, his Japanese <laughs> is not going to be the issue. But, and I know. I think that is a tendency in the UK as well, but I think in the UK there's more of a sense that in the end it's up to the parents unless they're really abusive or something you know, egregious. And they can kind of tell the professionals where to get lost in the end of the day. Whereas here it's a lot harder to do that, again, for, for good and for bad or a good side of that as well, especially in a small place. So you kind of have to, have to kind of go along with it and nod, and then if I think it's rubbish, then just ignore it <laughs> quietly. <laughs> And, and do you speak to Thomas in English like half the time, or how do you how do you raise a bilingual I, child? Good question. I wish I knew. I'm still like, you know I'm experimenting, but um, I speak to him in English as much as I can. Ideally, it would be a hundred percent of the time, and that's what I get told by my friends back home, by my parents. You know, you should speak to him in English the whole time, and I do try. It's hard because we're in such a small community. When I'm out with other people who don't really understand English, it can look like I'm excluding them, although that's not what I want to do. And also because English is used here, as in other countries, as a kind of English ability is seen as sort of proxy for intelligence. So if you have good English scores, which you have to take English as an exam at you know, high school, then you can get into a good university. So people have a complex if their English is not good. Oh, I'm especially in the countryside. Oh, I'm not really intelligent. I'm not meaning to say that at all, but those feelings come up if I'm speaking English around them. So trying to balance, I don't. And in the past, and to some extent in the present, mixed nationality, mixed background, mixed race kids have tended to be bullied in Japan when it's been a quite sort of monocultural situation. I don't want that to happen. Although again. I think it's less likely to here just because it's such a small community in a way that everyone's a bit more individual. So because of that, I'm trying to balance, but I tend to mostly, as far as I can, I speak English to him. But as a family, the three of us together, we have to speak Japanese because my partner doesn't speak English. Except he's picked up the basics, the things I'm always saying to Thomas. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. when, when your husband was visiting hmm. England, did he find his beloved vehicles was he happy or what what was his cultural shock being in the UK he did he saw lots of vehicles and um, my parents <laughs> and I arranged it so that he got to see lots of vehicles he also likes airplanes we went to see an air show which he thought was amazing so that was great I think his image of the UK was just a British rock and cars and I think he thought that 
everyone would be into that. And he was surprised that, you know, most British people, a lot of them really don't care. I think he was a bit disappointed in that sense. But it's the same, I suppose, as Westerners coming to Japan and expecting to see samurai and kimono and stuff all the time and then finding that actually, you know, most people with their lives. Um, what else? He found the language barrier hard. You know, the fact that I had to interpret everything for him, he found that frustrating and hard. And he also, he found the diet hard. Not that he thought everything was disgusting. Um, he, he, he thought the individual items of food were okay, but he's just, it's just very different from what he was used to. So after a week, he wanted to eat rice rather than bread every day, <laughs> for example. Right. <laughs> have, have you, speaking of food, have you ever had kaiseki, where they have oodles of, that's my favorite food in mm -hmm. the world it's so many little dishes with different mm -hmm. different pottery and different flavors and it's just the most fabulous experience deep mm -hmm. it is it, it's beautiful it's also very expensive so i haven't done it very often but yes i have no when uh, when i was in tokyo my translator had a former boyfriend who took us and i think it was like a hundred dollars each to, mm -hmm. for, for the dinner but it was it was worth mm -hmm. it it was so yeah, bad that it was, sounds pretty cheap by standards. I think if you went to some famous Kyoto restaurant you'd be paying three or four times that I'm guessing but yeah yeah but even in general Japanese cuisine even when it's not kaiseki as you know it tends to have several small dishes rather than one big plate all the things on so for breakfast we would often we have baked fish and we have miso soup and we have maybe three or four vegetable dishes and we don't make them every day. I mean, of course, you make one and then you eat it for a few days when you're at home. Uh, but still, in that sense, it's maybe more work, I think, than making a Western food. You know, at home, when I was growing up, I had cornflakes and boiled egg and toast for breakfast every day. And my parents were reasonably health conscious and all that. But that was just, you know, seen as a good breakfast for a child. Whereas here, I'm supposed to be rice and fish and that's all. And again, I have to write it all down for the nursery to check. So I <laughs> oh my goodness. So yeah. do you do most of the cooking? Um, no, I wouldn't say most. The majority because I'm home more of the time, but I do maybe six, 65%, so maybe two-thirds. My husband would do about a third. Um, but it depends on the day. Um, if he's got a day off, he'll often cook. And in the morning, he's usually responsible for breakfast, which it's not all cooking from scraps, it includes getting out what we've already got, but I'm getting Thomas ready and he's food ready. Because he works late shifts, he's usually still there in the morning, so we eat. Right. <laughs> in terms of Japanese politics, Prime Minister <clears throat> Abe is quitting. He says uh -huh. he says because of health reasons. Is that <clears throat> true? What 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 difference will it make if Abe leaves when he leaves? As for why he's leaving, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I have no inside information. It's true he did have health issues in the past, so I think that's probably certainly part of the truth. I there may be other factors as well, but I think that's genuine. Um, also, I guess it's looking less and less likely that Japan's going to have the Olympics, and he really wanted the Olympics, and that was his big thing. And he, I don't know. This is complete speculation. I have no idea whether it's the reason behind him leaving, but it might be easier for... In the end, the Japanese government to accept not having the Olympics, maybe if Abe is not here, although I still think they can't really make the decision themselves. They have to wait probably for the International Olympics for people to say, no, we're not holding them, and then they can say, oh, well, you know, too bad. We're really sorry. <laughs> but what difference will make, I guess it's good as mine, it's still going to be the Liberal Democratic Party in power. But the Liberal Democratic Party has been in power basically ever since the Second World War, the end of the Second World War. So there are various factions within the party, and I suppose it depends who, which faction the next leader comes from and how close their politics are to Abe's, but I don't see it massively changing. Right. <laughs> In terms of youth activism and youth issues, I, I hear mm -hmm. a little bit about environmentalism or, mm -hmm. you know, protest against Fukushima, nuclear disaster, huh? but but mostly it seems like uh, youth aren't out speaking out very much about mm -hmm. issues. I don't know what what do you hear about youth activism? Overall, I would agree. I mean, there are certainly are youth activists, and I know some of them, and I've been on demos and so on myself, and older people as well. But in general, the kind of image of activism in Japan is 
older people, especially men in their 60s and 70s, who are a bit sort of radical and slightly weird, and a fringe even of that, of that age group. Um, after Fukushima, it's interesting, after the Fukushima disaster, that changed for a while. And if you went on demos, anti-nuclear demos, you would get whole families and, and all age ranges and people who obviously hadn't been on demos before. And also in much larger numbers, although still they would be probably not large by Western standards. But here, if you get a few thousand people on a demo in central Tokyo, that's quite large. Um, so it looked as though things were changing. But then I think because there wasn't immediate success, I'm not sure how much it really built into a movement or how much experience had been a movement. So, of course, there are, there are activists who are still going, and the anti-nuclear activists are still going. But again, it's tended to, to act more somewhat to the older generation in general. I mean, of course, there are youth activists as well. Um, and similarly with the climate, I mean, there have been climate marches in Tokyo. I went on the first one last September, but again, it was maybe three or four thousand people, which it was big by, by Tokyo standards. But then the whole the whole coronavirus thing, I you know, that's that's one reason why there is there are less of demos and stuff at the moment. Um certainly compared to what's happening say in the US at the moment, there's nothing like that for various reasons. I mean in terms of environmentalism or environmental activism or racism or anything. There's not that sort of movement. Right. <laughs> do do as many young women go to university as young men? Or what? What? Pretty do you much. Um, I don't know if it's exact numbers, but you, if you look on the Ministry of Education website, they actually have very good statistics, even in English, and including for, for progression rates. And Japan has one of the highest progression rates to undergraduate in the world. It's something like forty-five percent or something of high school graduates. It's not very different for boys and girls. In the past, girls tended to go more to two-year junior colleges. But as the population has declined, and as junior colleges have been, degrees have been less seen as less prestigious, more girls have also started going to actual universities, like four-year universities in Japan. It's four-year undergraduate. So I don't think there's a big difference in the undergraduate rate. So is a, there is a difference at graduate level in Japan. The graduate emphasis is very much on the sciences, the physical sciences engineering and that's very overwhelmingly male but in terms of undergraduate I think the disparity is maybe more in employment than graduation one of a colleague working in international education once commented that Japan has you know, the most highly educated housewives in the world and like, okay so it's changing a little bit but, but it, is that is that changing I, I interviewed two um, young climate activists and um one of them said that her friends still kind of expect that the, the even the educated mother is going to be mm -hmm. home with the children and the salary man is working and then goes to drink with his buddies after work mm -hmm. and so the mm -hmm. woman is is responsible for the children's homework and school success is is that being challenged well, I think that probably is some people I'm sure are challenging it um but in general as I said, there's still an expectation that the parents will be involved more with the child after school, and the parents is in fact the mother, because if the man has a traditional job, he will be expected to work long hours. Um, he might be moved around Japan. So there's a phenomenon called Tanshin Funin, which means that the, the father goes to work on the other, at the other end of Japan for two or three years. He's sent there by his company, but his children are too old at that point to move without disrupting their schooling, so the, the mother and the children stay home in Tokyo or whatever. Wherever, and the father just gives them a weekend, and that still happens. Hmm. So in that sort of situation, and again, it's hard for a woman in, in that situation, if she's on the same, exactly the same career track, then she's expected to be sent for walk for three years, and then what happens to the kids? It doesn't, until the company's stage, and some companies are, but you know, it depends on the company, until that situation changes, and how much individuals want to change their family dynamic, it's not the individual women, or the individual men, for that matter, it's more the Structure they're in, right? Mm, right. 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 Um, um, so yeah, there's st it's still. I don't. I don't think. I was going to say it's still now. A lot of my information about this comes from when I was working for the British Council, so it's getting on for a decade old now. But as far as I know, they still quote the graduate employment figures, so this university graduate employment figures, separately for men and for women. 
So X percent of male graduates have found jobs at this point, and X percent of female. And it's always fewer of the female. Mm. And that's kind of taken as a given, the fact that they would quote the two figures separately, given that they'll be separate. And even if the women do find jobs, they might not be in the same category. And now, and another, so another reason I think is that the way the job market is set up in Japan, it's very hard to come back into the job market after a break because traditionally you've been expected to be with the same company and move up within them. Although people are changing companies more, it's still a very sort of seniority based system. So if you have a break to have mm. children, then you want to go back into work, it's very hard to get a full-time job. You can get a part-time job, which is much less well-paid and has less good benefits, but it means you can be there for the five o'clock or four o'clock. So a lot of women, or a lot, a significant number of women still, I think, find themselves in that situation. And that's it. It's changing. And the fact that there are all these waiting lists for the childcare in Tokyo and other big cities, it shows that women are wanting to work and that there are a lot of women working with younger children. I know that Abe committed to having more childcare so women could be employed. Yes. He wasn't doing it as a feminist gesture. He just wanted no, more no. workers. Yeah, he was doing it as an economic, yeah. economic imperative, economic and sort of population imperative because there are fewer and fewer young people. Japan doesn't like the idea of mass immigration, which is the other way you can solve a workforce issue. There are only two ways. Um, and so, or, or you can try and build lots of robots because that is trying to do it. There's a limit to what you can do with that. Um, no, he was doing it as an economic imperative. And you know, to be fair, to an extent, it has succeeded. There is more childcare than there was. And more men are taking parental leave. Another ironic thing is it has very good entitlement to paternal um, fathers, you know, paternity leave. Um, very good legal entitlement, but very few people think because uh, it's such pressure on the men if they were out of the system you know because of the seniority thing but also just how would the other men look at them right is feminism looked at as a western odd concept that we don't doesn't fit in japanese culture do you hear young women talking about feminism not really um i don't really hear them talking about it one way most of them i mean this is not counting the sort of activists and really more you know progressive people that um in general, I would say no, but then, to be honest, I wonder how much among young women in, say, the UK, how much is it talked about? When I was growing up in the, you know, 80s, 90s, we weren't really, nobody really talked about feminism. I only really learned about it later, so I don't think it's just the Japanese thing. It was kind of seen as something that they did in the 60s, and now it's done, and we're, we're fine. <laughs> mm. um, for, I'm working on this book about climate activists who are girls and all the all the girls that I've talked about throughout the world including the UK I ask them do you consider yourself a feminist and they say mm -hmm. yes enthusiastically so yeah and it's like hello don't you yeah, believe but, in but equality they're climatized a bit, so they're progressive anyway so they're probably more aware of Oh, yeah, they use words like intersectional and yeah, yeah. gender mm. binaries and, gen, you know, so, yeah, mm. they're definitely progressives. Yes, so I'm, I don't know, I haven't lived in the UK for so long, I couldn't tell you what, now, what young women think. I, this is, again, looking more from my experience, but, again, in Japan, I would say not in general. But then, not in, maybe they wouldn't use the word feminism, but there are some some kind of movements that have become reasonably popular on social media that I suppose would be feminist, although they might not, not everyone who agrees with them or join in with them would necessarily know the words. Um, so, for example, recently there was a, a quite popular social media campaign um, which was kind of on the, on the back of the Me Too movement, but it was called Kutsu in, Jap in Japanese. It was to do with um, basically changing the dress code for women in a lot of companies that women have to wear high heels and a lot of women were trying to stop that. And I don't know if everyone who signed up necessarily saw it as a feminist issue, but I mean, obviously it came from a feminist perspective. Um, or another case that's got high profile recently is about the rape laws in Japan and how difficult it is to, um, to prosecute. I mean, it's difficult anywhere in the world, but particularly in Japan, because there was a the case of um, Shiori Do, who was 
alleges that she was raped by a man who has pretty close connections to the prime minister or covered up. You know, and she was, but it was unusual that she went public and you know, and with her name and her face and everything. So there are, of course, I mean, women like her who certainly are approaching things from a feminist perspective. But in the discussion in general, I think not very much, really. Hmm. Um, is there anything you miss about the UK, like food or little things that you miss? <laughs> um, yeah, of course there are there are food things I miss from time to time. Um, getting good cheese that doesn't cost the earth, or <laughs> different kinds of fruits and vegetables that you can't get here that you can get there, but then vice versa as well. Um, I miss charity shops. I think you would call them goodwill shops, maybe. Oh, so it's thrift, thrift shops or second shops, hand yeah. shops. Yeah, but but the one the charity shops in the UK at least they're run by NPOs, so people donate yeah, yeah. stuff that they don't want, and then yeah, you go and pay, and then the money goes to that NPO. They don't really exist here, and recycling or reusing more, I suppose, does exist, but it's less less of a big thing than the UK. So I miss I miss those. Um, the charity shops I was just going to yeah. enjoy going having a browse um, I suppose now that I have a child it's not even a cultural thing it's just that my good friends from school and university and so on are still in the UK and I have friends here but they're not the same kind of close friends that I can rely on in quite the same way so when I went back to the UK last year for the week's um, work a couple of evenings, I had to be out until quite late in the evening with some dinners. And a friend drove an hour and a half each way and then stayed overnight and looked after my son, my good friend from university. I don't have many people in Japan who would do that. One person maybe in Tokyo, an older Australian woman who is a good friend, I could ask. But now with coronavirus, we can't even go to Tokyo. <laughs> so I suppose I miss that. It's not so much culture. It's just to do it. Right, and I'm, I'm sure it's hard to have your parents so far away because they can't come and be babysitters no, or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but mm. it's it's so beautiful. I, I what I miss about Japan is the beauty that you just mm -hmm. take a walk and then there's this lovely old temple, and I miss the onsen, the fantastic yes, yes. hot springs, and the food, yes. and and you can go mm. to a little uh, little corner store drugstore kind of thing and get really good little prepared lunch foods that are like natto or something that's healthy. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Convenience stores are great. Convenience I stores. My parents about that. Yeah, if you want to eat well when you're traveling for not much money. Yeah. That's what I would do. <laughs> Definitely. Um, is, there, is there anything else that you would like us to know about how you transition to adopting to a completely different culture, what that takes? Anything else about your interesting life? It's a pretty broad question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, well, I think it's it's a continual sort of balancing act, isn't it? Like, how much do you try and fit in with the local culture, and how much do you stay true to yourself? You know, what what's negotiable and what isn't? And I'm I'm still finding that out. And because the situation changes. You know, when I, I knew before I got married that if I ever married a Japanese person, then I would be in the culture in a much bigger way for good and for bad. And being in the countryside, that's certainly true. And then having a child is even more so. <laughs> so, so I'm continually learning, I suppose. So I don't know the answer. Well, but that's what's enjoyable, is to mm, yeah, continually yeah. finding nuances and subtleties that you... Mm -hmm. well, what's an example of something that you've learned recently about Japanese culture and thinking that that you didn't know about after all these years? Can you think of something? Recently. Um, oh, sorry, I can't think of anything, just particularly. Do you go to... Um, temple and you know ring the bell and make a wish um, on new on new year's day yes which is about <laughs> the only time that japanese people go as well <laughs> no we met people born which was the middle of august so the, the festival where the spirits of the ancestors return we went to the temple to visit the graves of various relatives so we do occasionally go but not on a regular basis mm. 
what do you do that surprises your partner? It's like, oh, why did you do that? That was interesting. Um, what do I do that surprises him? Probably just, I don't know, what, what do I do that surprises him? He's, well, he's used to me pretty much by now. Um, sometimes it still bothers him that I don't you do all the cleaning and spend the whole day getting up at four o'clock and cleaning and cooking, whatever. But but he's he's pretty much used to that by now. I think. <laughs> Great. Um, all right. Well, this was a treat. Thank you so much for for doing this with me. I, I, so interesting. Yeah. That was great to connect with you as well a little bit. Yeah. That was 